This is episode five of the Swallow Your Pride podcast, and today we have Matt Ward of SA Swallowing Services in Nashville, Tennessee. Yes, that's that same company with Dr. Ashford who did the podcast, which was episode three on oral care and the three pillars of pneumonia, which that episode has gotten a rave review, so go back and check that out. But yeah, they just hoard all the great clinicians in that company. I'm super jealous. But anyways... Matt is very knowledgeable and passionate about using the most valid and reliable methods of assessment that we have available for swallowing disorders. He gives a great overview of screens and clinical swallow exams and how the Yale Swallow Protocol has simplified his practice while improving the accuracy of identifying dysphagia. In this episode, we discuss why your comfort level doesn't matter and we can't be emotional with our recommendations and instead use evidence-based practice in these decisions. We also discuss how being conservative in our recommendations can have negative implications for our patients. Matt also discusses a game-changing paper for him written by Dr. Maggie Lee Huckabee about rethinking rehab and how our treatment needs to be specific, challenging, and monitored with feedback. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders. And I know firsthand how much confusing and conflicting information there is out there about how we assess and treat swallowing disorders. This podcast is all about bringing everyone together, getting on the same page, being open to new ideas, and using evidence-based treatment strategies for our patients with dysphagia. So let's get into it. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining me. We'll get right into the podcast in just a minute, but... You know, the whole point of doing this podcast is to be able to bring you some extremely valuable information that doesn't cost you a darn thing that you can just mindlessly listen to on your commute or while you're at the gym or making dinner. But some of you also might realize that you do want more information and you would like to get to use for it. So I've partnered with MedBridge for the entire month of September to bring you an amazing deal on their membership CEU packages. So I know it's getting towards the end of the year. You're like, oh crap, I need to catch up. I need to get some CEUs. We've got you covered. So I know there's a few different membership sites out there. Why did I decide to partner with MedBridge? No brainer. They have so many great resources all in one spot. There's webinars and lectures from Dr. Yanessa Humbert, Dr. Kate Hutchison, Dr. Katrina Steele, Dr. Marty Brodsky, Dr. Stephanie Daniels. Dr. Crary, Dr. Carnaby, Dr. Grower, Dr. Arvidson on pediatric feeding and swallowing. So many awesome rock stars in our field. So whether you just need to brush up on the basics of swallowing physiology, or you want to learn more about dysphagia and acute care or stroke, or more about video fluoroscopy or rehabilitation treatment techniques, uh, I could go on. You get the point. But you have access to all of these with a MedBridge membership. So the regular price for this membership is $320, but MedBridge has sweetened the deal for Swallow Your Pride listeners for the month of September, and they are upgrading everyone to their premium membership, which includes patient handouts and videos, a mobile app, live webinars, and more. So all of that for $95. So unlimited access to hundreds of CEUs for $95. So go to medbridgeeducation.com, click on Speech Language Pathology, Sign up for the SLP education plan and enter promo code SYP at checkout. So SYP for Swallow Your Pride. Enter promo code SYP and you'll be automatically upgraded to that premium membership, but only for the price of 95 bucks. So super steal. Get on that. Now we'll get on with the show. All right, you guys, before we get to the show, which I feel like I keep saying that in these promos, but this is not a promo. This is just me being honest. I am so, I am beyond blown away by the support for this podcast. It was really just a crazy random idea that I had that I really thought a lot of people could benefit from. And we had over 3,000 downloads in the first week. That's incredible. And and it debuted at number 11 on iTunes in the science and medicine category. That is just, that's wild. So thanks for your support, you guys. I'm totally doing this for all of you. <laughs> Um, but it's cool. It's fun. I'm so I love everybody I've gotten to interview so far. I have so many cool interviews lined up. So, you know, please email me or please send me a message on Facebook or if there's anybody in particular you'd love to hear from. I'm always looking for different topics, but I just wanted to share an iTunes review of the week because like I said, I'm totally doing this for you guys. So this stuff just makes me want to keep going even more. So 
this this young person did not leave his or her name. It just says by SLPCF, but it says excellent podcast. Before starting my CF in August, I began reading more about evaluating and treating dysphagia on the SLP medical groups on Facebook. I started to learn that my experience with dysphagia therapy and evaluation during my last three medical externships isn't all evidence-based. Honestly, very frustrated and a little down on myself for having just left school and not up to date on all the latest info. After reading Facebook posts, I seriously questioned how to even do a dysphagia eval treatment, even though I spent three externships doing just that. Thanks to this podcast, I'm starting to feel way more informed with what is and isn't evidence-based. We'll definitely continue to listen to this amazing podcast. This would be a great resource for grad students. I wish it had existed while I was in school so there could be more class discussion on relevant topics. So SLPCF, I don't know who you are, but feel free to email me. I'm so glad you're learning from this. This is honestly my whole goal for doing this podcast. But one more thing before we get to the show, I promise. Every episode I do, there's going to be show notes posted on the website. So go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com. Um, and every episode has show notes and in the show notes is all the references. So I know one of my friends messaged me yesterday. She's like, I'm driving. I'm trying to write down these references. Oh my gosh, I'm texting you. I'm like, no, no, keep your eyes on the road. Do not text me. All the references for this podcast episode are always going to be in the show notes. So even this, this upcoming episode here with Matt, there's three pages of show notes, you guys. This one's really, really good. I tried to keep them to just one page, but Matt cites so many good references in this. So if you want the references for it, head over to swallowyourpridepodcast.com and download the show notes. All right. Thanks. Hi, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm happy to. All right. Well, tell the people a little bit about yourself. Who are you? My name is Matt Ward. So I've been working in uh, the medical field for about six years now. I started off in a rural SNF. It's about a 90-bed facility. Transitioned uh, a couple years ago to acute care and then started working with a mobile fees company about a year ago. So that's just a little bit about me. All right, cool. And you work for SAS in Nashville, is that right? do i work for sa swallowing services okay and do you do you do acute care on the side is that what you said yes i do um i'm still a prn in acute care oh cool okay so tell us what you want to talk about tonight (laughs) uh (laughs) i would like to talk about um screening versus diagnostic assessment tonight all right it's always the hot topic between What exactly can clinical swallowing exams tell us or not tell us versus when we actually need to see what's going on? Absolutely. So first of all, I'm not sure what all the fuss is about. To me, it's a pretty straightforward way of looking at things diagnostically. I was in a, my, my first setting was a sniff, and we obviously didn't have a radiology suite and we didn't have any in-house uh, instrumental exams. We did have uh, mobile fees that would come out, but I mean, I was, that was me with my bedside and I was the only guy out in the middle of nowhere um, treating my patients. Uh, and just from being in that environment, it's pretty simple to me uh, to understand how scary it is to make treatment decisions just based on a clinical bedside. Um, And if we're just looking at, say, ASHA's preferred practice patterns, uh, it's pretty simple to tell the difference between a screen and an assessment. Uh, Yep. I know. I just emailed those to someone today. Someone was like, well, why hasn't ASHA said anything? It's like, well, they have, actually. Yes, it's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. Screening really is a pass-fail kind of a thing. Uh, You can determine whether or not further testing uh, needs to occur, but you really can't see inside. The the larynx really is a a black box. Uh, If you you read the ENT's literature, uh, just uh, ENT's talking about how wonderful it was when they could actually visualize the larynx um, directly, not not just with the mirrors. Uh, So it's not just our profession that's looking at this, ENTs as well. And diagnostic assessments versus a screen, you get a lot of information. And what that does is it allows you to evaluate oral, pharyngeal, upper digestive structures to determine 
respiratory coordination, strengths and weaknesses, um, identification of impairments, all of those things. This is all just taking that from ASHA again. And when you have that information, it's really nice. You can make a good treatment plan for your patients. You can yeah. help rehabilitate them. Yeah. Um, so that's that's really where I kind of wanted to start. Just that information is there. It's on ASHA's website. It's been there for a while. Um, and that's kind of where I start as a clinician. I can look at a patient and say, are you at risk for aspiration? Um, if you are, let's dive in and see what's going on. Okay, so if you are having trouble advocating for instrumentals in your facility, I do have a four-part blog series about how to advocate for them, which includes ASHA's stance on the matter and why you should have access to instrumentation, who you should actually advocate to, and how much all of this craziness can cost. So there's actually a 12-page resource guide you can download that helps walk you through the process of advocating for them to your administrator. And if you go to swallowyourpridepodcast.com for the show notes, the link to that blog post is in the show notes. So tell me, I think you were saying that in your past sniff life, you were one of those that ordered a ton, a ton, a ton of instrumentals. Yeah, I did the math on that because, well, now I work for SA Swallowing Services. And uh, one of the things that they, they were the provider for our mobile fees. And so one of the things they had data on was how many swallow studies I ordered as a clinician versus other clinicians in our region. Yeah. And for our patient population, per patient on my caseload, I ordered more swallow studies per patient on caseload than anybody else in our region. I absolutely used that tool that was that was there. Someone before me had gotten the contract, and I'm very thankful for that. Yeah. I would call them on, well, just about everybody. And it, I got a little bit of pushback. Uh, I do hear a lot from clinicians, whether or not, whether it's on Facebook or whether it's face-to-face uh, in talking to them or over email or over phone about some barriers. You know, not every one of us can get instrumentals where we are is, is what I hear a lot of. And for me, I got a lot of pushback. Uh, my administrator actually was from a, another facility where they did not do instrumentals was was within our company they had a contract with the therapist there just cho- chose not to do instrumentals so he came to our facility and i was ordering them like crazy and uh he's he said to my director of rehab we never did this before i never had to sign off on this many before. yeah so she came to me then she's a physical therapist and for any other reason than she's a physical therapist didn't have a whole lot of idea about whether it was best practice. So I I developed a little presentation for her, which was fairly easy. Uh, Even though she was a PT, we still speak the sort of rehab language. Our administrator still was not terribly happy with signing off on just a ton of fees. Um, And so I put together a presentation for him. One of the things that I noted in the presentation was uh, there was a hospital right down the road from us, and we were seeking to be their preferred provider. We already kind of were, but uh, the hospital was going through new bundle payments and billing issues and all of that. And one of the things that they were looking for or to reduce is the number of bounce backs um, within a 30-day period. So you mean by bounce backs, you mean rehospitalizations, right? Correct. Yeah. Because that hits them right at their bottom line. So yeah, one, yeah. one of my points to him was we can reduce the number of bounce backs for pneumonia with instrumentals. I put together some data for him, some of the research, and I never had a question again about that. Now that all took about two or three months. It was a it was a long process, but it was all about educating. I was the only person in the building that was able to say, I'm a dysphagia specialist, for lack of a better way of putting it. Um, this is my little corner of the store. I'm going to tell you what best practice is. I'm going to ask for what I need to do the job well. And it ended up working out for me. Yeah, yeah. That was kind of my same exact experience, too. I took this travel position it was like in the middle of nowhere the super rural facility and they had a mobile fees contract I don't think they had a full-time SLP for maybe a year or two so everybody was on thick and liquids in the facility everybody I mean like everybody literally so I came in and I'm just like this is ridiculous like I'd be sitting at the table everybody's on thick and liquids so they had a mobile fees contract and the girl that came in and did them was phenomenal. I loved her so much. And we ended up just picking like one day a week and just knocking all these people off thick and liquids. Like they'd come from acute care like two years ago and it's still been on, you know, so same thing. The administrator came to me and was like, 
you know, pump the brakes, what's going on here? And I had to do the same thing. I'm like, I don't think you realize how many people you have on thick and liquids and all the other yep. effects that can have. You know, you can be causing dehydration, UTIs, and then you also have the CNAs here that are like, I can't keep track if this one's on honey or nectar, and then they get dinged if, you know, they serve the wrong one. So at first he was really resistant, and then I was like, well, just give me some time. Give me some time. Let's see if we can knock some of these people off thick and liquids. And then we met again about a month later, and he was like, this is the most we've ordered ever here, but this is the lowest amount of people on altered diets than we've ever had. And I'm like, well, now you know the people that actually have dysphagia. Yeah. You know, now we have our list of these people that actually have dysphagia, not just the ones that are on these phantom thickened liquids, do a chin tuck with no straws and puree diet for no reason, you know. Sorry, that was my own little tangent. That's all right. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's good to know that it works out. A lot of times I hear from other clinicians all of these barriers, and quite frankly, all of the barriers, not all, but a lot of the barriers are ones we allow. Yeah, absolutely. Like I just wasn't going to allow that administrator to tell me we couldn't order anymore without educating. Now, if I do all of that and it takes two or three months and my DOR is still saying no and my administrator is saying no, I either got to look at doing the job and staying there or leaving. Right. But it ended up working out. Um, so I just, I know a lot of our barriers come down to what we allow. And right. there are a lot of, like a lot of other disciplines, uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy, nursing, there are certain things they need to do their job. And I don't think we always do a good job of saying, this is what we need to do it well. Yeah. If someone says, can you do it with less? We most of the time say, sure. Yeah. We can do it with less. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a good point. That's stupid. It's silly. No. <laughs> so let's talk about what do you consider to be screens? Screen seems to be a word that is offensive to some people. And I can kind of see why. It, it makes some people feel like uh, they are not skilled, uh, that a screen might not be skilled, that a screen can be performed by anyone. But I'm going to fall right in line with the late, great Stephen Leader on this one. Um, anything that is not an instrumental uh, is a screen. And quite frankly, could be performed by people other than us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it really doesn't take our skill to do a screen. So I would consider examples of screens would be like the MASA, the Yale Swallow Protocol is an example, the SAFE, yeah. Swallowability Function Evaluation, and I would consider a clinical bedside a screen. So let's talk about, I know a lot of people say that their DORs want them to pick a, a standardized screen. The man, uh, the MASA is, and the SAFE, they're standardized, which is better-ish I would guess. Non-standard dysphagia evaluations leave a lot of room for things like, hey, do you, do you want to go watch them eat? At least we're checking off some boxes and we're doing it the same on every patient. And if you start with the, a good screen, that's going to lead to better outcomes later because you're going to have a higher chance, a uh, higher probability of identifying people who actually are at risk that need treatment than if you're just kind of doing sort of a hodgepodge thing, which is quite frankly what I came out of graduate school with. And I have an excellent professor, but I just kind of made my own bedside up. I mean, <laughs> do some of this, do some of this, do some cervical auscultation, do some palpation, do some cranial nerve function, do three ounces of water, do some puree. Um, but it certainly wasn't standardized. So I would be all for people standardizing their screens. What I'm not all for is is taking that information and determining anything more than aspiration risk. Yeah. So where does that lead us? That leads us to actual diagnostic assessment. In our profession, there are really only two. Um, I mean, we can do some high resol resolution manometry and some things like that. But really, when you're talking about actual diagnostic assessment, it's the modified barium swallow study or the video fluoroscopy and fees. That's really the only two we've got. And those two are both great. I have done, oh, I did the math the other day and I can't remember. I've done a few hundred modifieds, a few hundred fees. I like them both. They both have limitations, but I would say that they are both the gold standard in our yeah. profession. Yeah. So do you, you do modifieds at your acute care hospital? I do. Cool. I do. Use the MBS IMP. All, all right. Awesome. So... I love talking to people that have a good amount of experience with both. 
you know, so they can honestly say that they both are very valuable. Yes, um, they both are. They both have limitations, but that, and I hear people say that, um, I think because they prefer one over the other. I mean, quite frankly, everything we do has limitations. Yeah. I see a patient in their room that limits me versus seeing them in a different room. It's, they both give excellent amounts of information you just kind of got to know where your blind spots are with each of them yeah like i can't see i can't do an esophageal screen with a fees yeah i can do at least a screen uh an esophageal screen with my modified so it just helps to know your know your blind spots yes yeah. yeah. so to speak absolutely so the clinical swallow of valves or some muddy waters here yes uh so from my own experience, uh, from, from reading the literature, from my own experience, what I thought starting out as a clinician was the more things I had on my bedside, the more confident I would be uh, in assessing what was going on with someone's swallow, and the more able I would be to determine what kind of treatment they needed to make a definitive diagnosis, offer them well, the best services I could give them. What I actually found in using that bedside was when you have lots of information and it's all subjective. Right. When you when you look at a fees or when you look at a modified, it's an objective evaluation. When you're looking at palpation or cervical auscultation, um, those are subjective measures. You can look at the literature and it is pretty clear. Palpation, you can feel hyolaryngeal elevation, you can feel the movement, but you can't actually tell if someone swallowed or not. Uh, cervical auscultation is the same thing. All of the other things you look for, watery eyes, um, wincing, uh, even a cough, which is our best predictor. Not always all that good. Right. In fact, our, our best predictors are about uh, right about 80% of the time, which means about one in five of our patients we can miss. Right. So what I found uh, is that I would have done cervical auscultation. I would have done palpation. I would have done trials of puree. I would have done trials of a little cookie. I would have done some thin liquid trials with a straw, without a straw. And what I was left with was a really unclear picture. Maybe they coughed once or twice here. Maybe they didn't cough here. Maybe palpation felt a little funny. I didn't know what amount of weight to give the information I had gotten because it was all just kind of equal. Palpation was equal with the three ounce stress test I did, uh, which was equal with cerv cervical auscultation. So it became more difficult. The more things I had, the, the more pieces I added to my, to my own little protocol, uh, it became more difficult to actually determine what was going on. Yeah. So when we're looking at screens, and I would consider what I was doing back then a screen, it needs to be simple so that you don't confuse yourself and make poor clinical decisions. I think that's an excellent point. A girl just messaged me on Facebook, like, can I ask you a couple questions? And that was her, her, her whole thing. Well, I did a bedside on this guy today and I found this, but then I also found this and I don't, I don't know because he coughed with this, but he also coughed with this. And it was, yeah, it was like she had, she tried to do a very thorough bedside, but she had so much information and she still was left with, you know, no place to go. So she's like, I just don't know what to do from here. I'm like, well, we, you need an instrumental, you know, if he's coughing on this, this, and this, <laughs> it doesn't really help you out. Right. And that's, and you would know this from doing mobile fees. That, that's what I hear every time I go see a clinician. Well, not every time, but yeah. a lot of the times <laughs> when I go see a clinician, it is because they have thrown their hands up with their bedside. Yeah. It's looking like they're okay. And then five minutes later, it's looking like they're not okay. And is this cough that's maybe two minutes after they swallowed something related? Is it not related? Um, is it related to their COPD? Is it related to a medication? I just don't know. Yeah. And they've thrown their hands up. And at that point, we bring in the instrumental, yeah. which is why I like the pass-fail part of a screen. It really cleans up our clinical thinking. If I look at it like you are either at significant risk for aspiration or you're not and you can eat and drink safely then i can know oh well my next step is just to go on and get a modified or a fees because i won't know anything until i do that yeah and the faster we do that the better yeah and and going back to that a little bit i had a girl last week it was actually her first time seeing mobile fees done we've got the contract done in her building and great young clinician the guy just has a, a chronic cough you know, I'm going through the past medical history, going through the med list, and he's on lisinopril. So I said to her, you know, I was like, do you understand what happens with lisinopril? I said, have you ever heard of the lisinopril cough? And she's like, no, I have no idea what you're talking about. Like, it's one of the major side effects of this med. It's a pretty common med, but it leads to 
chronic cough. So the guy just has this wet, wet, wet cough when he's just sitting right next to me while I'm doing the chart review. You know, we hadn't even started with the food or liquid yet. And of course they had him on honey thick. Swallow was good. We were able to upgrade him to thin. But then she messaged me again today because he's still coughing and nursing wants to downgrade him back down to honey. I'm like, no, you know, we, that's why we did the study. His swallow is beautiful. He doesn't need the thickened liquids. He's on lisinopril. That's why he's coughing. You know, so it's, I just kept trying to stress to her the whole point that it's a big picture. There's lots of other things that can cause a cough. It's not, and you know, as well as I do, it's the same cough he has throughout the day. It's not just at mealtimes. Yep. That's why it's important to do thorough med checks and past medical history too. And it's my little rant. That's fine. I have a lot of rants. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what don't we know on the clinical swallow exam? What we don't know is what's going on inside the black box. Uh, that is your pharynx and your larynx. You don't know anatomy and physiology. You cannot see that. You cannot feel that. Um, I just did a, a fees yesterday on a patient uh, who'd had a modified and was still having some issues a couple months later. So she ended up at a sniff and uh, I went, did her fees uh, and she has got a very large uh, pharyngeal abnormality. It looks like a tumor. We can't diagnose that. And she hasn't been diagnosed by ENT yet, but it's a soft tissue thing that you also couldn't see on a modified. You certainly couldn't feel that when you palpated um, even though she had an instrumental, we still missed it for a couple months. So you're not seeing any irregularities, not seeing bolus flow characteristics. Uh, you're not seeing silent aspiration. Uh, obviously, that's why it's called silent. So let's back up to the bolus flow characteristics. Right. So like, I swear this guy's got premature spillage. <laughs> and you're telling me no. Yeah, I, you you can't see it. Uh, the other thing is we, we get into arguments all the time about what the hell premature spillage actually is. Right. You know, right. I, unless it comes <laughs> flying back at me, it's not premature spillage. Absolutely. You can yeah. have a little bit of posterior leakage. I mean, that's pretty normal. Yeah, yeah. It can get down in the piriform. But anyway, you can't see bolus flow characteristics. And it's different with every patient. Uh, it's a nice thing about doing modifieds and fees is you start to see what normal bolus flow looks like, which you're not really prepared for if you're just a clinician right. doing your bedsides. Right. Uh, you know, I, a lot of times, uh, I even did when I first started doing modifieds, uh, you freak out about somebody, oh my goodness, their, their vollecula is filling up. So are so their piriforms and they haven't swallowed yet. A lot of times that's quite frankly normal and age related. As you age, swallow trigger gets further and further down into the pharynx. But even some, I did an outpatient modified on a 20 year old. She uh, had a lot of spillage down into her piriforms. It wasn't what I'd call premature spillage. She just got down to her piriforms before she triggered a swallow. And she had a beautiful, pristine swallow. So if you can't see it, you can't diagnose it. So right. uh, bolus flow, I don't know how you can see it. Uh, unless you're looking uh, with a fees or with a modified. Um, and I certainly never made those type of uh, calls on, from a bedside. Uh, and I wouldn't ever recommend that. I have seen people who do, um, and I, I am wondering how they divine that information. But we're kind of in this weird melting pot right now of like people are realizing that there's so much more to the swallow than just the three phases. So now it's, I feel like people are picking up these buzzwords like, oh, uh, she must not have good laryngeal vestibular closure. You know, it's like we're picking these words right. up on these reports and we think that now we can translate and report them just from the bedside. You know, I had this conversation with an SLP the other day. I'm like, you can't document on any of this stuff. You don't know this stuff. She's like, well, you know, I, I kind of guessed from that. No, you can't. Like, stop. <laughs> right. And the other thing about, like, specifically bolus flow characteristics that informs your treatment. And unless you can see it, you don't know how to treat it. Yeah. So anyway, that's that's part of my rant about bolus flow. Yeah, I love a good bolus flow rant. <laughs> <laughs> so why can you not be conservative? Okay, so this I could literally spend days talking about. All right, well, we got days, let's go. So a lot of clinicians, and I think probably when I first came out, uh, I was this way as well. 
um, just because of some of my clinical rotations. Uh, but a lot of clinicians think that thicker is safer, even though in graduate school, even in your bare bones dysphagia classes, there is usually some sort of wink or a nod to thicker is not always safer. But when you get out and you have supervisors who will say, oh, they had trouble with thin liquids and then all of a sudden they didn't cough with nectar, we're just going to go on and put them on nectar because we don't have access to a fees or to a modified, or maybe we do, but we're just going to try and keep them from coughing. Um, and we're not going to do a fees or a modified. When you get used to that type of uh, type of thinking, a lot of times you just, if you're scared, if a patient scares you, if you are, if you walk in and they have a wet vocal quality and they've just had a stroke and they're completely flaccid on one side, um, and you just don't want this patient to die because of you, <laughs> you desperately want to help them. Uh, you can kind of fall into this trap of, oh, okay, well I'm just going to be conservative with my bedside. Maybe I've gotten some conflicting information on my bedside from like we've talked about before palpation or auscultation or maybe a cough with uh, thin liquids and not a cough with nectar or honey so i'll just be conservative with this patient it's the weekend i don't want to you know go changing diets making them npo freaking things out i'm just gonna if they came to me on puree and, and nectar i'm gonna leave them on puree and nectar or maybe since they didn't come to me on puree and nectar and now they're having trouble and I can do something about it, let's just drop them down to nectar and puree. Um, for my part, uh, that's a completely unethical way to act. If you're going to alter someone's diet, you better have a medical reason for doing it. Agreed. The other corollary to that is thicker is not always better. In fact, sometimes thicker is less safe. Um, you can see that on your instrumentals, whether it's due to residue or just the changing of the bolus flow. Now it's happening slower and this patient is having more trouble reacting to it. Once it gets down into the lungs, thickened liquids also are not handled as well by the body. Uh, small amounts of thin liquid are handled fairly well by the lungs as long as you don't have a lot of oral flora. Um, but that thickened liquid, all, all of the histological studies show us, and a lot of just other research, like Jerry Logeman's paper, where she looked at uh, nectar thick, honey thick, and I think chin tuck with yep. patients with Parkinson's and dementia. Uh, honey thick actually carried with it a higher rate of pneumonia. Now, it reduced aspiration, but it carried with it a higher rate of pneumonia, which is the thing we're trying to stop. Right. So, so right. it's it's dangerous. Um, I guess is my my. I think the last three four podcasts I've done, everyone's brought up that study. So hopefully, people will start to realize it's important. Well, the other thing is that study is is a nice randomized control trial with a large number of participants. And in our field, we don't have just a ton of those. Right. Um, but this is one thing, I think there were nearly a thousand participants, maybe 920 something participants, good high number. Uh, so you can start to generalize some things from that and also randomized and controlled. A lot of our studies are <laughs> small numbers, not randomized, not controlled. Um, but this is pretty solid evidence yeah. that thicker it can in fact uh, be a little more dangerous and then you also have a patient compliance issues patients rated on that study they do not like the thick liquids um, which then leads to issues of dehydration and uh, all sorts of other lovely things that come yeah. from dehydration um, electrolyte imbalance and, and many many other things so you can't just be conservative by quote unquote downgrading a diet I also don't like the fact that we call it downgrading because that means that if we upgrade somehow that's better. It just, my patient is going to get a diet that they can tolerate. And then we're going to also develop treatment strategies to try and rehabilitate them. This talk of downgrading and upgrading, I think makes us think that that's where the real meat of our profession is. And it's really not the meat of our profession is getting patients better. Absolutely. The only way we can do that is to, actually have informed treatment. That treatment needs to be informed by uh, instrumental studies, and then that treatment needs to be rigorous. Absolutely. You know, I think of like the way I've always kind of thought of thickened liquids is like the way PTs or orthopedic surgeons think of crutches. You know, there's something just to help you while you strengthen the muscles to get back to walking yeah. again. So that's when it just drives me nuts when I see, you know, people have been on thickened liquids for years. You know, it's not something you just slap them on and walk away. 
it's okay. We realize that we need them now. Your muscles are a little weak, but now we're going to make an evidence-based treatment plan with evidence-based treatment strategies to improve the swallow, rehab the swallow, and then hopefully get you off the crutches. Absolutely. So, so fees versus MBS. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> well, really, for me, it's fees and MBS. I, I like them both. The hospital where uh, I currently work, we don't have fees, uh, even though I've tried to get fees. We don't. Uh, so I happily use modifieds there. I don't really feel limited other than scheduling. Uh, scheduling is, you know, okay. the biggest issue uh, for me with uh, modifieds in a hospital. There are also the patients that are so um, medically fragile, like our ICU patients uh, or our neuro ICU patients that can't make it down. They can't take the transport. It would be nice to have fees for those patients. Um, but really for me, they're just two sides of the same point. They give us the information we need and I'm happy to use them both. You get pharyngeal and laryngeal anatomy and physiology with both. You see deficits and strengths. We don't talk enough about strengths. I don't think, especially if we're just looking at bedsides, we're looking at, oh, um, there's a deficit there and, and let's be scared of that deficit. Um, when you are looking at modifieds and fees, you can actually see where your patients are strong, uh, where they're not. Um, but you can then design treatment based on strengths and weaknesses, not just weaknesses. Uh, you can see the etiology of the swallowing difficulty with both, um, which allows for appropriate use of exercises or strategies or postures. And we didn't really get into postures um, in when we were talking uh, just a couple minutes ago about why you can't be conservative. There was a trend uh, 15, 20 years ago that we're just going to do a chin tuck. Yeah. Everyone's going to do a chin tuck all the time and that's going to make it better. Um, and then somehow we as diligent speech therapists taught nurses that Right. And nurses listened. <laughs> Ran with it. It is one of the only yeah. things um, <laughs> that we taught them that they have held on to. And they have done a great job of learning right. it and applying it. So when you walk into a room in the ICU with uh, the grizzled old unit manager who's been a nurse uh, for 60 years, and she says, they're fine. I've got them doing a chin tuck. Um, <laughs> it's little for those of us who routinely do instrumentals. Because you can see on instrumentals, postural changes are a godsend yep. for some of our patients. It is the only way that some of our patients can swallow safely, whether or not that's in the short term or even the long term for some of our patients. But you also see that a chin tuck or a head turn can direct the bolus flow yep. right into the airway without yep. any protection. Um, so doing them, being conservative by, oh, well, saying, let's just do a chin tuck with this patient um, is actually not being conservative. It's, uh, yeah. it's a little scary uh, to think of uh, directing the bolus somewhere where you have no idea where it's going. Yeah. Could be doing a lot of good, could be doing a lot of harm, but we quite frankly don't know. Yeah, I did a fees today, actually, and the, um, the MBS report was pretty crappy, but... That's for another day. But basically, the guy was NPO, and the only thing that it said was residue was the only documentation on the report and recommendation nice. of NPO. So anyways, like I said, that's a whole other bowl of wax. But the SLP tried to do what she could with that information. Okay, he's got or residue in the molecular. Let's try a chin tuck. So she's thinking that's you know ultimately going to be the best strategy for him. So she's got this guy doing it. We go and do the fees and yeah. it made no difference yeah. whatsoever, you know? So here this guy, you know, is trying to be compliant, you know, till he's blue in the face, but it didn't change anything at all. So uh, the other thing that is nice about the instrumentals, like I had said uh, earlier when I was talking about being a young clinician and, and just relying solely on my bedsides and, and those decisions that I was making about patients uh, from my bedside only were scary. When you do a an instrumental like a modified or a fees your comfort level a lot of times at least part of your comfort level goes out the window because now you have definitive evidence it's no longer right are you comfortable with this patient being on that i hear a lot of therapists say that um, i'm just not comfortable with them being on thins yet well our comfort should really be removed 
Right. <laughs> and in place, yeah. we should have evidence. And that's the great thing about fees and modifieds. I was training a, a fellow SLP on modifieds when she was going to start doing them at the hospital. You know, I had my, my form with all of my data. You know, each swallow gets penetration aspiration scale one to eight. And do they have residue here, there, or anywhere else? And, and then also just some notes out to the side. And this was a, one of our patients in the ICU who would just been stable enough to come down and do a, a modified they come off a vent and so she looked at me uh, when I said what my recommendations were going to be based on all of our data and she said are you comfortable with that and I said it's not about my comfort look at this sheet they right. didn't even penetrate on thins so why would we put them on nectar right so it removes that are you comfortable with this? I think a lot of times we think that, or we put ourselves in a place to say no to a lot of things with our patients when we should in fact be putting ourselves in a position to give them the best possible chance to get better and the best possible chance to have quality of life while we are with them. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and our comfort level doesn't, shouldn't play into that as much as I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. When I interviewed Ed too, and that was one of the first points that he said was we have to take the emotion out of dealing with swallowing and just apply science. Oh, absolutely. It's not an emotional thing. It's we have to apply the science and apply the research and take our emotion out of it. Absolutely. I agree 100%. Parting words about instrumental assessments? I don't think so. I think I've said everything. I say that, and then five minutes later, we have a rant <laughs> well, about it. Let me ask you, because, you, I mean, you've kind of been through the gamut. You've been through skilled nursing. You've been through acute care. You've been with fees. You've been with MBS. What do you say to the clinician that just says, my administrator just says no? What would your advice be? My advice is there is a minimum level of skill. There is a minimum level of uh, materials and equipment that we require to do our job well. And I'm going to say that to my administrator. I'm going to put together a presentation. I'm going to educate him or her on my off time uh, because a lot of us are non-confrontational. I really am quite non-confrontational in a work setting unless I'm advocating for my patient. And I'm not going to allow my patient to be put in harm's way or to have less of a quality of life because someone says no. Because my, in my estimation, when someone else says no, it's because they aren't educated enough. I've never run into a doctor that once I talked them through my thought process that has had a problem with ordering more instrumentals. Uh, I never had a, a nurse either, um, not another speech therapist, um, or even an administrator. Administrators, they deal with the bottom line every day. And sometimes we kind of have to tailor our, our points to that. I had mentioned earlier, when I talked to my administrator, one of the things that I made sure to hit home was if we want to be the provider of choice, we can't be sending people back to the hospital within 30 days with pneumonia that was preventable. Yeah. And one of the ways that we can do that is by utilizing this fees contract. It's going to save us money. Now, from my clinical perspective, I, I don't really truly care that it saved us money. Um, but the fact that I needed to make that point to him was not lost on me. Um, and so for the clinician who says my administrator just says no, we're kind of left with two options. One, have we really educated our administrators enough? And very rarely have we. They have very little time. They have very little mental power to devote to, to something like this, but very rarely have we actually educated them well enough. If you have, and there are people, I, I see them every day, I talk to them every day, there are people in a rare case, and it's rare, where their administrators have been educated, and it just doesn't matter. And at that point, you got to ask yourself, if it's something my patient needs and I can't get it here, do I still need to be here? And that's a hard thing to do when you're looking at paying bills, right, paying right. a mortgage, <laughs> uh, other jobs in your area. But quite frankly, if you need something for your patient, it really should be a deal breaker. <laughs> no, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I really, truly do. And there's a, a girl that keeps sending me messages and she keeps asking me for more advice because her the, the doctor at her facility just says no. And at, at what point do you just go to the administrator then? Like, I can't do my job. It's me versus the doctor here. Obviously, you must think yeah. that the doctor trumps my professional opinion, but I can't do my job here. Yeah, like you said, I mean, you got bills to pay and things, but at what point does it come to a head that I, I just wouldn't feel 
Like I need to feel satisfied. Like I love what I do. I, I truly love doing mobile fees all day, every day. I love it. And I, I could not do something all day, every day if I was, if I wasn't satisfied with doing it, you know, so I wouldn't be able to stay in a working in a, in a job where I wasn't, couldn't do what I wanted to do, couldn't do what I needed to do. You know, I mean, especially now that we know all this, we have so much evidence. Asha has spoken on it. We have so much research and, you know, people are still saying their hands are tied. But I mean, I just like, like you said, have we done everything? I think there's a lot more that can be done. I think, yeah, I mean, the administrator may not say they have time, but see if you can sit with them for 10 minutes at lunch. You know, hey, can I just come in? I know it's your lunch break. Let me just sit and talk with you for 10 minutes, but be prepared, you know, do your research. You know, I've got an entire blog post dedicated to this, but you know, do your research and bring it all in, do the cost breakdown for them. You know, a lot of times if there's, well, I need to figure out the cost or I need to figure out the transportation, you do it for them, figure it out. Yeah. I just think we can do more. And that's what I did as well. I, I made a PowerPoint for my administrator. The other thing that you can do um, if a doctor's opinion does carry more weight than yours, and I never had this issue, um, but because our administrator was was nice enough to to take the data I had, and and it was satisfactory for him, but you know, even if you're in a, a rural SNF, you've still got a medical director there who's a doctor. Um, sit with your medical director, and if you can convince your medical director, you and your medical director can sit down with your uh, administrator or your medical director can by his or herself sit down. I had to sit down with my medical director because we did have one doc of the seven docs that practiced in our facility um, who just would not order speech. Um, and if we made recommendations, would just write his own. He would <laughs> write for thickened liquids if he wanted to. If he wanted the patient off thickened liquids, he would just write it. I would come, he would come in, I would see him face to face. I would tell him what I saw tell him that we'd done a fees, show it to him, he'd sign it, he'd say okay, and then he'd just write what he wanted to in the chart. So I went to my medical director about him, and I said, I don't know how we do this, but we need to come to some sort of consensus. Can you help me? You you know this doctor, you both practice in the same town. Is there something I can do? And then it ended up, he went to that doctor on my behalf. Um, and basically, from then on, we were swallowing precautions were followed um, our recommendations were followed if we needed a fees we got it but it took another doctor going to that doctor so i've seen that work and i also know uh, your administrators from being in those meetings with administrators um, and the doctors who run their board of directors um, and their medical directors they listen to them those administrators pay very close attention to what those docs says especially your medical director um, so that would be another avenue for therapists who have kind of done all they can do. If you can get a doc on board who is, I think Carmen Bartow uh, talked about it in the ASHA leader, uh, having a doctor who is a champion for you um, goes a long way in any facility. Now, she was specifically talking about a very large research hospital and talking about developing a, a trach team, I think, in that article. But I think that rings true in any setting. If you can get your medical director on board, um, that'll go a long way to getting your administrator on board as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I must say in the last maybe two years, I've made some incredible relationships with medical directors in my facility. Specifically, I have this corporate contract of eight facilities and the medical director over those eight buildings just loves fees now. Like she will actually call me herself and just say, oh, there's this one guy at this building that I want you to see. I'm so excited to see it. You know, I can't wait to see how it comes out. But when I first met with her, you know, she was very hesitant, too, because she didn't know. But, you know, I showed her the study. And I really just watched, like, before my eyes. At first, she was so hesitant, kind of standoffish, wasn't sure what to say. But then she was like, well, this is great. I had no idea we could see the swallow like this. She's like, well, this is, you know, as doctors, we learn in med school, we need imaging. You know, I can't make a diagnosis on one of, the, you know, if this little old lady falls and breaks our hip, we have to get imaging. And she's like, this is fantastic. I had no idea we could see the swallow this way. So, and she has literally been the biggest advocate for me. Yeah. And it's just really kind of renewed my faith and, and having those partnerships. And it has made me kind of want to reach out to the medical directors in the groups that I work with even more. So I mean, I've started sending quarterly reports to the medical directors of the buildings that I service too. Like, hey, I'm not sure if you kind of know about this service. <laughs> this is what we do. And these are the outcomes we've made with the patients. And 
that's kind of made a huge difference too. Well, yeah, and I think as clinicians, we have this feeling, especially young clinicians, that doctors know everything um, and that they always know best. And quite frankly, we've run into the same thing with uh, new rehab hospital uh, came online and we have the contract there. And one of their docs just sat down with Michelle the other day and watched the fees and said, I had no idea. Same type of thing. Had no idea we could see this. Why don't we do this for all of our patients yeah. <laughs> who have dysphagia? Uh, like, that's what I've been saying. <laughs> right. And she's, she's going, oh, so you can actually see that that strategy made it better. You can make a definitive diagnosis. That, that patient also had a, a funky sort of abnormality on their vocal fold. And we were able to make a referral to an ENT. Uh, and we, we wouldn't have known that otherwise. Yeah. Um, so that's the thing that I think I also want to get across to, to young clinicians who, or really any clinician who just, a, a doctor can sometimes ride roughshod over you. Uh, a lot of times in acute care, they feel like they have uh, more pressing concerns, patients on ventilators, patients with, uh, on tube feedings uh, who are now malnourished and dehydrated. Um, they have horrible vital capacity with their lungs. Um, they have all sorts of issues. Uh, they have brain tumors, uh, whatever it may be. Uh, but really, we are the swallowing specialists. That's why we're there. That's why they consult us. If they knew or really wanted to know, they would take the time to do it themselves. But they don't, so they consult with us. So really what we have to do, and this is what I learned in acute care, same thing in SNFs, but you really you're training those doctors what they need to know. Yeah. They don't know a lot of times. Yeah. They have had their, they may be a specialist who's focused solely on one area, um, like ENT, I had an ENT surgeon at the hospital um, who just had no idea why, a, why his patient had difficulty swallowing after he removed two thirds of his tongue. <laughs> He just was telling me, he, he was just fresh out of med school, young surgeon, great doc, really good to talk to. He wanted my input on everything, but he couldn't understand. And so we had to kind of walk through it with him. And once we sort of got him trained, for lack of a better way of putting it, he was a great referral source for us. Yeah. So I had no idea that this could be a problem. I'm going to refer my head and neck cancer patients to you before they start treatment, which is what you should do. Yeah. Um, so, but we, we a lot of times just think, Oh, the doctor told me no. The doctor knows best. I just need to listen to the doctor. No, the doctor needs to be educated like your director of rehab, uh, just like your administrator, uh, just like anybody else you run into, because this is kind of our corner of the store. This is what we, an area we know more about than anybody else, or we should. Yeah. And so those doctors need educating too. If they're constantly saying no's, no to your modifieds or to your fees, sit down and show them one. Sit down and talk to them. That's another, I guess, another thing that a lot of times is, is lost on clinicians. But the doctors can be wrong. Right. <laughs> well, and I think, too, how kind of new is this in our own field? Like, just within the last five, you know, ten, five, ten years is this huge push. Even in the last few years, this huge push for instrumentals. And this is our own field. Yeah. So how can we expect doctors who have their own fields, have their own specialties, to know what the latest research is in our little corner. Right. You know, so that's kind of the way I think of it when I, you know, feel intimidated to go talk to a DON or a doctor about something is I have to remember this is kind of all brand new evidence to us. I can't expect them to have kept up on the latest dysphagia journal when he, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, so that's a huge piece is just advocating for our profession. And I know, you know, a lot of good grad school professors will say that too but it's just a huge piece of what we have to do and in order to do our job we've got to tell them why we need to do it not just assume that they should know this right right so so one final question for you here so what treatment assessment research paper what has been kind of a game changer in your practice this is a question i've been throwing at everybody at the end so i have a, a couple one for diagnosis specifically is the Yale Swallow Protocol. Okay. Um, it absolutely changed the way I practiced as a clinician for the better. It crystallized my thinking, uh, which if you have a good thought process about your patients and their uh, swallowing problems, then you're going to have good outcomes. Um, so like we were talking about earlier, uh, a lot of 
times when I was doing a bedside early on, I would the waters would be kind of murky or muddy because I didn't know what to pay attention to. The Yale Swallow Protocol is insanely simple. The other thing about it is the research is exquisite. Yeah. We're talking 5,000 patients, multiple centers, randomized, controlled. We're also not talking about a patient-specific population. We're talking about they, it was given to patients, gunshot wound victims in the ER was given to patients with Parkinson's, patients with dementia, patients with strokes, patients who had just had GI surgeries. So very large numbers, very good numbers as far as its sensitivity. Um, sensitivity is around 98% for that. When you take a look at um, clinical beds or bedside swallow evals, you're looking at about 80% sensitivity. You take that up to 98%. I can live with that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I can't live with missing one in five of my patients yeah. who are aspirating. Yeah. I can live with 2%. Yeah. Because there's not much in medicine that's better than that. Yeah. So that changed the way I did things. Either someone is at risk for dysphagia or they are not at risk for dysphagia. That's the two things you're looking at. If they are at risk, then you get a modified or a fees. That's as simple as it could be. Um, I became a better clinician when I started utilizing that. That's, that's the simplest way that I can put it. Okay, so what if I've never heard of the Yale Swallow Protocol? All right. <laughs> Yale Swallow Protocol is takes about five minutes to administer, maybe 10 minutes depending upon uh, the setting. Uh, it's a set of questions, uh, just some orientation uh, questions. Uh, what's the date? How are you? What's your name? Things like that. You ask them to perform uh, some simple tasks, and then you do a three-ounce water challenge. And really, the deciding factor in the test is the three-ounce water challenge. They are to drink three ounces of water, uninterrupted, uh, through a straw or through a cup or by a cup. It doesn't matter how they do it. They just have to drink three ounces, uninterrupted. Then you wait for up to one minute to see if they cough or clear their throat. If they cough or clear their throat within one minute, uh, that's a fail. If they are unable to finish it, and I'm thinking a lot of times about our patients with COPD who are on 12 liters of oxygen um, and just cannot finish it because they're because of breathing difficulties, then that's a fail as well. Uh, any reason not being able to finish it is, is, is a failure. If they fail, they are then NPO until you get a swallow study, either uh, modified or a fees. I have done that in acute care, which it's really a lot easier to get a modified faster. I can usually do it within a couple of hours, but even if it's at the end of a day on a Friday, we're not waiting much more than uh, 48 hours that the patient for the patient to get a modified. Uh, but I've also done it in SNFs, and that's a little bit harder because a lot of times it takes longer to get there. But having said that, I think the longest I ever had to wait in a SNF was 72 hours for a fees, um, and that is part of what we had talked about earlier is advocating for what you need yeah. and making sure you have that contract in place. So you, you really wouldn't want to start using something like the Yale Swallow Protocol if you don't have access to instrumentals. That's sort of the next step. It, get, get your access to instrumentals, then use something like the Yale Swallow yeah. Protocol. Yeah. If you really don't know what it is, it, I believe Deb Suter was the author on the Yale Swallow Protocol and also Stephen Leader. Um, and it's actually a book. The book is, is really good and really informative. It's I think it just started out as being a paper, but it's evolved into a book. So I do recommend checking that out if you really, if you don't know what it is. Although I was playing Debbie clinician, but in case you don't know what it is, it is a good, a good source. So, all right. You said you had more than one, Matt. All right. So for treatment, and I just read this last year, it's Maggie Huckabee's article, it's Rethinking Rehab, Skill-Based Training for Swallowing Impairment. This came out in the ASHA Perspectives Special Interest Group 13 uh, in 2016. Uh, just sort of like the Yale for me, it helped me correctly or better conceptualize swallowing treatment. So her basic argument here, and it's a great article filled with just tons of information, um, very practical information. Basic argument uh, is that a lot of times with, with our exercises, when we're looking at exercises for treating dysphagia or rehabilitating dysphagia, we sort of default to a position of, oh, it must be because they're weak. There is this, they're, they're weak and that's why they're having trouble swallowing. Why are they having trouble swallowing? Generalized deconditioning. When she wants us to conceptualize dysphagia as a motor planning 
disorder, not necessarily due to weakness. Weakness is a part of it. One contention of that article that possibly some of the reasons that a lot of our therapies are not quite as beneficial for our patients is that they do typically only address weakness and they're not necessarily addressing motor planning. Uh, So what we're doing when we're modifying a diet and changing to a thickened liquids is we're changing the motor plan. So we try and take that patient back to thin liquids. Well, now we've been retraining them on this new motor plan for thickened liquids, a slower bolus, a bolus that's harder to clear from the pharynx. Um, We actually haven't been rehabilitating them. We have been teaching them how to swallow thickened liquids. That's not necessarily one of her contentions in the paper, but that's kind of where the paper leads. It also says that for us to be effective, the task must be specific. So I think of it kind of like, if I want to go run a marathon, at some point I'm going to have to run. I can't just sit there and do ankle pumps, calf raises, work on my quads with weights forever. At some point I got to run. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to finish a marathon. Um, Same type of of thing with our tasks. A lot of our non-swallowing tasks simply don't meet the criteria we need to have an effect on swallowing. They may strengthen specific muscles, but not during swallowing. So the task has to be specific. The task also has to be challenging. We don't know how many repetitions to recommend for these exercises. When you are lifting weights, if you've ever lifted weights, you know when you cannot push a dumbbell up off your chest anymore. You know when that muscle is fatigued. We can't tell when that muscle is fatigued enough during a swallow. You can't feel it, you can't see it. So we have to introduce a challenge. You can't just have someone with a disordered swallow continue to swallow all day and expect that that's going to meet the criteria for an effective rehabilitative approach. And then the other component she asks or she is is looking at in that paper. So she's, she's looking at specificity, you know, for swallowing, you need to be swallowing. It needs to be challenging. And then you have to have some form of feedback. So that for me is like the effortful swallow. Effortful swallow is a great exercise if we can truly tax the muscle, if we can truly fatigue the muscle, if our patients know what it needs to feel like. Because what does an effortful swallow feel like for you versus what it feels like for me when we say swallow hard? Have they reached that maximum potential? Have they done it each time? Have we done enough repetitions to actually fatigue that muscle? We don't know. Now, that gets into an area um, where a lot of us, a lot of therapists don't have biofeedback devices, although they are becoming more prevalent, and the research for those biofeedback devices like SEMG, that research is excellent. Outcomes are much improved. And if you think about it, it only makes sense. You're actually fatiguing the muscle. You're actually using principles of exercise science. That patient knows what it feels like to swallow to the degree that they need to swallow. The, uh, the effort they need to put forth, and then you know the potential that they need to reach. So that's that's what that article does. It talks about specificity, challenge, and feedback, and absolutely changed the way I thought about my patients and the way I treated my patients. So yeah, good. That's great. Any any advice for young clinicians? For CEUs, don't think of CEUs as something you have to do. Think of CEUs as something to broaden or deepen your perspective. We come out just like doctors do with the most minimal amount of information possible to practice in our field. And CEUs, especially if you've got a company that's going to give you any money towards CEUs, are so valuable. Uh, I see a lot of push because the continuing education budgets are shrinking. In in both of the facilities that I worked in, uh, the continuing education budgets were slashed in half. So I understand that there is a, a cost factor for clinicians. And online CEUs, quite frankly, are cheaper. But what I have learned in helping provide CEs um, for SA swallowing services and just in taking them for myself, I learn a whole lot better when I am there with someone who I can ask questions Uh, about what they're talking about. I can ask specific questions about patients I've had. And then the other thing about that is it may be more expensive to travel to do a a continuing education course. It may be more expensive just to take it. But what you get with that is, is, is you get, depending upon however many other SLPs are in that room, those are all your resources now. All of those people are now resources. And the best resource I have found in our profession is other professionals. 
when I am stuck and I can't find something in the literature or I'm confused about the 10 things I have found in the literature that all <laughs> seem to contradict themselves, I'm going to call somebody I met at one of those continuing education courses that I know is an expert in that area that I can bounce something off of. Uh, I can bounce an idea off. Yeah. That's the kind of thing you can't really get in an online CE. So CEs for young clinicians, uh, I would say it may cost you a little bit more, but it is so much more valuable to, to, to do them in person. And I think just hearing it from the actual researchers themselves is quite powerful. It's very powerful. I'm always just kind of in awe when I listen to these researchers because they can just stand up there and talk for hours and hours and hours without even looking at slides. Just know it's someone that's so passionate about their work. They're so intelligent. I always just have an extra appreciation for the work that they do. And it's kind of like, oh, I really should take this back and use it with my patients like this guy really must know what he's talking about <laughs> like, i just always have a newer appreciation after i hear someone in person well thanks so much matt this was great well i'm glad there's a lot of this stuff i don't know i just want the information out there I want it to exist in the same space with the bad information i know i know is can if we can't get people to do it can we just have it exist alongside the bad stuff yeah that was that was my question <laughs> That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Yeah. We've perpetuated such bad information for so long. Well, damn it. It's time to start perpetuating good information. So yeah, I've been so impressed with all the guests I've had so far on this. I feel like I just, I'm not really doing anything. I just sit here and listen to you guys lecture me for an hour. So I think it's been great. (laughs) That's why I wanted to be a part of this podcast. Number one, it gets the information out there. And the other thing is that's that's the whole thing I'm trying to get people to understand. It's what I tried to get my graduate students to understand, is if you can just think correctly about it, you can then be ready for all of the unique situations you're going to that yeah. are going to occur. I don't need the the entire chart review on your patient and then you post it on Facebook. <laughs> you need to be able to think about that patient in a different way. And then come to me maybe later as you know, as another clinician and say, Well, I've got kind of this higher level question, not I've got this patient, here's the right. chart tell me what to do. Right. Somebody posted some, it was maybe like a month ago. They're like, I have this patient with this. What should I do? And I just literally took a picture. I had my iPad open and I just, I have one of the the Corbin Lewis list textbook on my iPad and I opened it up, posted it. And she's like, oh my God, how did you pull that up so fast? I'm like, well, I have the resource here. Like it's not, I mean, it's not that hard. Like if you don't know the information, like I, I hate to say Google it, but Google it. Like if you if you've never heard of this condition, Google it. Get some ideas first, and then if you don't know where to go for it, then ask a question. But yeah, we're not teaching them how, yeah. to, how to think. Somewhere along the line, <laughs> we're not doing it. So if you would love to hear more of these episodes and get some easily digestible bites of swallowing knowledge, then please leave a review on iTunes or pledge a small amount on Patreon.com forward slash Swallow Your Pride because that is what keeps these episodes coming. Also, don't forget to subscribe, share with your closest colleagues, and show notes will always be available to download over on SwallowYourPridePodcast.com, where you can also be notified of the latest podcast episodes. Also, credit to Stephanie Jacobson for her incredible editing skills, and thank you so much to all of you for listening.